Our uh, committee will come to order, and uh, this morning uh, we are going to, uh, on the 30th anniversary, or the day after the 30th uh, anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and to honor all those brave citizens of China who believed in a freer future for their country. Please join me in a brief moment of silence for them, including those who lost their lives. Thank you. In June 1989, the photo of a lone Chinese citizen standing down a column of People's Liberation Army tanks in Tiananmen Square was the snapshot seen around the world of the Chinese people's suffering. The Chinese government's modes of repression today are perhaps more difficult to capture in a single image, but are none, nevertheless omnipresent, pernicious, and increasingly brazen. Every day is Tiananmen Square, but you don't see the uh, pictures and you don't see the way that uh, they are treated because it's done surreptitiously. Though perpetrated by the Chinese Communist Party for decades, human rights abuses have intensified under uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. As we sit here today, there are between one and two million Muslims locked up by Chinese authorities in internment camps where they face political indoctrination, isolation, abuse, and death. For every person in the camps, dozens more wonder what has happened to their loved ones. In general, freedom of religion is extinct in China. The Chinese Communist Party is bent on interfering in the selection of the next Dalai Lama. It has shut down churches and detained Christian pastors. And the Chinese government is working on crafting so-called correct interpretations of the Bible. All of this is part of explicit government policies aimed at stripping religious organizations of their independence and forcing them to align with the Chinese Communist Party. Those who bear the greatest brunt of the Communist Party's disrespect for the rule of law are those who stand up to defend it. In the four years after the Chinese Communist Party's July 2015 crackdown, numerous human rights lawyers and other advocates have received multi-year sentences. Those not in prison face restrictions on their freedom of movement and other forms of harassment and intimidation. Alongside these seismic abuses of power, we should not forget the injustices faced by all Chinese citizens each day. It's, it's uh, every censored internet search or text message. It's the inability to buy a plane ticket because of a low, quote, social credit score, unquote. It's every facial scan. These examples demonstrate technology's role as an accelerant in the Communist Party's repression today. The Chinese government and Chinese companies are pioneering an intrusive mass surveillance system. This is a serious challenge that we will pay particular attention to in this hearing and the committee's work on China. Another challenge is the spread of Chinese human rights policies outside of the mainland. Chinese companies are exporting technology to regimes with, pure, with poor human rights records and training authoritarian governments in information management and, news, and new media. China is seeking to redefine human rights norms at the United Nations, and it is exploiting the openness of advanced democracies to chill freedom of expression, particularly discussion about China itself. This is ruled by fear. This is a regime that believes it bestows rights to its people and can take them away just as quickly as it bestows them. 
a, a, re, a, regiment, uh, a regime that has appointed itself the judge of Chinese culture and identity, even though the birth of China predates the Chinese Communist Party rule by more than 5,000 years, and a regime that inserts the state in, into the facets of life that best promote human flourishing, faith, family, and civic engagement. The United States should make the defense of, in, of intrinsic values like fundamental freedoms and human rights a more central part of our approach to China, that we stand for freedom and human rights as well as prosperity is an advantage that we should not shy away from. I want to thank everyone for their interest in this topic and how we can stand up for the Chinese people as well as protect our own societies. With that, uh, I'll turn it over to uh, Ranking Member Senator Menendez for his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for calling this important hearing. And let me uh, thank in advance our three extraordinary witnesses. The 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre provides an important opportunity to discuss human rights in China and the importance of a value-driven American foreign policy. Indeed, the events of 30 years ago continue to resonate because of our collective commitment to building a more just and decent world. Unfortunately, China has continued down the path it began that fateful day, with Xi Jinping declaring himself president for life, cracking down on civil society and human rights, introducing an Orwellian system of mass surveillance, advancing militarily in the South China Sea, and with predatory economic practices in Africa and the Western Hemisphere, China's trajectory is clear. Under the guise of the so-called re-education campaigns, the CCP has brutally forced nearly a million Uyghurs in Xinjiang into heavily surveillanced forced labor camps, a model she may intend to expand throughout the country. Tibetans facing wide-scale repression and harsh controls on religious, educational, cultural, and linguistic freedom were in many respects the test subjects for the sort of ethnic surveillance we see in Xinjiang. CCP authorities likewise repress Christians and Falun Gong members who face forced labor and torture for their beliefs. Lawyers, journalists, students, labor activists, and human rights defenders are all at risk. And behind its great firewall, China has created a social credit system that rewards the quote-unquote good and punishes the quote-unquote bad. Sadly, China's authoritarian model is appealing in all too many places around the globe, where dictators and despots are happy to accept China's assistance in repressing their own people. From Cambodia to Venezuela to Angola, we find the Communist Party of China sharing the technologies and techniques they have refined to crush democracy in their own country. Developing an effective policy that keeps our values at the center of our China policy is uniquely challenging and increasingly urgent. Just being more confrontational with China does not make us more competitive with China, nor does simple confrontation help us resolve core human rights concerns. As we reflect on those lost and the events of Tiananmen, we must also look inward. We must ensure our values, grounded in international human rights, guide our efforts to strategically and coherently respond to China's rising power and growing authoritarianism. Unfortunately, the administration has simply failed to use our cherished, time-tested principles and tools to universally and strategically support and promote human rights. And this is simply unacceptable. 
To confusion and dismay, last week, Secretary Pompeo announced the establishment of a new commission to make sure that we have, quote, a solid definition of human rights. Well, the solid definition already exists. We don't need to redefine human rights. We need to defend and protect them. We must leverage all of our tools in our toolkit. We must cultivate robust diplomatic and security partnerships. We must bolster our own presence. We must address our own economic challenges and pursue more adroit economic statecraft abroad. And core American values must be the centerpiece of our foreign policy. We can start by investing in institutions that support democratic governance globally and stand with those who seek freedom. We must remember what made America a leader of nations. It wasn't just the strength of our military or the dynamism of our economy. It was the enduring power of our ideals. This committee must step up to advocate for more than a transactional approach to human rights, because democracy will not defend itself. In the memory of those who died for their belief in democracy in China 30 years ago, we must remind ourselves of the sheer power of an informed democratic society living in freedom. We must lead with the values that made us great to be a beacon for those around the world. In doing so, we offer a better model, one which the people of China demonstrated 30 years ago has universal appeal, not limited to a civilization or a particular nation. We must equally advocate, for example, for peaceful protesters in Sudan attacked by their government over the weekend. And it is these values that inspire others to partner with us and to rally with us in facing down the greatest challenges of our time. We owe those who stood in Tiananmen Square 30 years ago and the Chinese people nothing less today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We now have uh, three outstanding witnesses uh, that are going to testify. We'll hear from them, and then we'll have a, a round of questions. And first, I want to introduce Mr. Xiao Chiang. Uh, he is a research scientist at University of California Berkeley School of Information and the founder and editor-in-chief of China Digital Times, a bilingual China news website launched in 2003. Though a uh, theoretical physicist by training, he became a full-time human rights advocate uh, after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. His current research focuses on state censorship, propaganda, and disinformation, as well as emerging big data and uh, artificial intelligence-empowered state surveillance in China. Uh, uh, Mr. Xiao, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and respectable members of the committee. June 5th, this very day, exactly 30 years ago, I was studying a PhD program in University of Notre Dame. After seeing on TV the PLA soldiers opened fire on peaceful demonstrators in my home city, Beijing. I abandoned my astrophysics program and caught a first flight home to China. For two months, in the time of terror, I tried to find out what had happened, contacting people in hiding, dodging police, and handing over donations raised abroad to the victims and their families. And I came back from that trip with one full realization. I realized that the name of People's Republic of China itself is a lie. This government has never been the people's, nor it is a republic. China's National People's Congress is not elected by Chinese people. And China's People's Liberation Army only opened fires on people on the streets of Lhasa, Beijing, and these days in the towns and villages in Xinjiang. When challenged, 
This lie can only be maintained through brutal violence and the fear created through such violence. After 30 years, the Chinese Communist regime has not only survived, but also increased its power. Many Western politicians have convinced that the wealth of the middle class and the rise of internet will transform China from authoritarian regime to a democracy. But the reality is the Chinese rulers have taken advantage of their inclusion in the globalized trading process, significantly growing its economy under CCP-controlled state capitalism and refusing to allow any political liberalization. And President Xi Jinping today, after he scrapped the presidential term limits written in the Chinese constitution, he became the most powerful dictator of the world. And there's another threatening trend, the threatening the hope of freedom of China. The digitalization of Chinese society is turning China into a surveillance state. Facial recognition, voice recognition, DNA collection, 200 million surveillance cameras everywhere, social credit system, a new generation of digital technology, including artificial intelligence and big data analysis, is empowering the state to control, to monitor, to manipulate China's vast population in scalable fashion, at ease, and with the capacity to micro-targeting individuals. It can also help the state to identify and crush opposition in advance. China is exporting these technologies to other autocratic regimes around the world, normalizing and enabling a global authoritarianism. Ladies and gentlemen, United States must develop an effective policy to stop this Chinese surveillance tech industry disrupting its supply chains. And through working with allies, prevent China from using its government-controlled companies to advance its digital totalitarian interests in other parts of the world. We must have no illusions. It is the existence of Chinese Communist Party dictatorship that abuses and threats the liberty and the safety of Chinese people and the people's life anywhere in this increasingly interconnected globe. But this is not a clash of civilizations. It is a clash between two different political systems, between democracy and a one-party dictatorship. We just need to look to Taiwan, where Chinese civilization works well with democratic governance. We can also look to Japan, South Korea, and India. As a son of China and a proud citizen of the United States of America, I'm asking each of you, when making the best possible China policy that defends the value and the interest of American people, please also make it in align with and support Chinese people's struggle for human rights and freedom because we share a common humanity. 30 years after Tiananmen, Chinese Communist Party continued to rule China, rule Chinese people through fear. But those who rule by fear also live in fear. Last week, I was visiting Berlin and I had some time to take a walk on the streets where the Berlin Wall once stood. Now, it's only a dark line on the ground through the city. Some parts are hiking trails, 
But I also saw something else. Names of victims of Nazi engraved in the shining brass plaques. 70,000 of them spread throughout the Berlin city. I started to envision that one day in Beijing, the name of those who died during the Tiananmen Massacre will be engraved into the city's road, building walls and parks, and on Tiananmen Square, the gate of heavenly peace. I asked myself, where is Hitler's Nazi Germany now? Where is the former Soviet Union? Where is the Sohato's Indonesia? Or Pinochet's Chile? They're all gone because the ultimate spirit of human dignity is more enduring than tanks and machine guns, or even they're empowered by artificial intelligence and spaceships. Freedom will prevail in West or East, in Berlin or in Beijing. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to ask you, close your eyes for one minute. Just close your eyes. Can you see millions of Chinese faces on Tiananmen Square? Millions, peaceful, fearless, young, and full of longing for freedom. Can you see goddess of democracy standing tall in Tiananmen? Can you see that brave young man, his white shirt with two plastic shopping bags in his hands, standing still in front of column-moving tanks. Chinese people want, deserve, and demand human rights and freedom, just like American people, just like people in anywhere in the world. The only reason these voices cannot be fully heard is because they are being suppressed by Chinese government. Yes, it is the most powerful authoritarian state in the world. When it's getting powerful, the regime is not just domestically oppressive, but becoming externally aggressive and like an empire. I would like to end my testimony with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, a great man from another great civilization. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that testimony. We'll now hear from Sophie Richardson. Uh, she is the China Director at Human Rights Watch. Dr. Richardson is the author of numerous articles on domestic Chinese political reform, uh, democratization, and human rights in uh, uh, Cambodia, China, Indonesia, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Under her leadership, Human Rights Watch has documented a myriad human rights abuses by the Chinese government, including, most recently, the use of mass surveillance and the emerging technologies issue. Dr. Richardson. Chairman Rich. Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, thank you for inviting us uh, to join you on this very somber anniversary. Among the most disturbing aspects of President Xi's role is Chinese authorities' development and deployment of surveillance technology that aspires to engineer a dissent-free society. 
Authorities deny people any meaningful privacy rights from the government's prying eyes, and coupled with a deeply politicized judicial system, the lack of a free press, and the denial of political rights, people across the country have no ability to challenge these developments or even truly understand how society is being transformed until it impacts them or their families directly. What are some examples of this technology? One of the Ministry of Public Security's most ambitious and privacy-violating big data projects is the police cloud system, which appears to be national. The system scoops up information from people's medical records to their supermarket memberships to delivery records, much of which is linked to people's unique national identification numbers. The police cloud system aims to track where the individuals have been, who they are with, and what they have been doing, as well as make predictions about their future activities. In effect, the system watches everyone, and the police can arbitrarily designate anyone a threat who requires greater surveillance, especially if they are deemed to be undermining stability. The Chinese government is also developing a national social credit system that rewards good behavior and punishes the bad. At present, it is a blacklisting system in which behaviors the authorities disapprove of, from abnormal petitioning to eating on the subway, can affect one's ability to obtain services, such as getting mortgages or traveling on high-speed trains or even enrolling children in public schools. To what extent the social credit system will evolve and how it will interact with the police systems of mass surveillance remains an open question. In December 2017, we reported on Xinjiang authorities' compulsory collection of DNA samples fingerprints, iris scans, and blood types of all citizens in the region between the ages of 12 and 65, in part under the guise of a free public health care program. That campaign significantly expanded the authorities' collection of biodata beyond previous government efforts in the region. It did not appear that the government disclosed to the public or to participants the full range of how the collected medical information would be used and disseminated or for how long it would be stored, and it appears that people were given little information about the program or the ability to opt out of it. We discovered that a U.S.-based company, Thermo Fisher Scientific, had sold DNA sequencers to the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau during this period. After inquiries from Human Rights Watch, members of Congress, and the New York Times, the company agreed to stop selling that particular technology in that particular region. However, it remains unclear whether it has adopted due diligence policies that might prevent such problems in the future. Most recently, Human Rights Watch reverse-engineered an app used by the police and government officials in Xinjiang that is connected to a police mass surveillance system called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, or IJOP, which aggregates information about all residents of Xinjiang under the guise of providing public security. Our research into the app revealed that the authorities consider many ordinary and legal behaviors, such as, quote, not socializing with neighbors, quote, often avoiding using the front door, using WhatsApp, or simply being related to someone who had obtained a new phone number as suspicious. The app then flags such people for interrogation, some of whom were then sent to Xinjiang's political education camps, where they are arbitrarily and indefinitely detained. The consequences of these technologies across China are enormous. The state is now not only able to peer into virtually every aspect of a person's public and private life, but is also clearly using information gained that way to reward and punish people outside any discernible legal scheme. Major Chinese tech companies now operate around the world. In 2014, we documented ZTE's sale of telecom surveillance technology to the Ethiopian government, which used that equipment to monitor its political opponents. iFly Tech, one of China's major voice recognition companies, uh, which is helping the Ministry of Public Security in building a national voice pattern database, uh, is also working with MIT. 
China Electronics Technology Group Corporation, a state-owned defense conglomerate behind Xinjiang's IJOP system, has numerous subsidiaries, including Hikvision, a major surveillance camera manufacturer whose products are used around the world, including uh, in the U.S. What can be done about any of this? To combat the Chinese government's expanding use of surveillance technology and the Commission of Human Rights Violations, we urge the United States to impose appropriate export control mechanisms including by adding companies to existing export control lists and imposing targeted sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act. We also encourage consideration of end-user bans. U.S. companies and universities working in this sector should be encouraged to adopt due diligence policies to ensure that they are not engaged in or enabling serious human rights violations. We urge the swift adoption of the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which we were very glad to see uh, was voted out of this committee. While there is much work for the U.S. to do to limit Chinese government and Chinese Communist Party encroachments on human rights abuses in the United States, particularly with respect to realms such as academic freedom, those strategies must place at their core welcoming and protecting the rights of people from China who come here in order to be able to freely exercise those rights. Finally, the U.S. and ideally members of this body today should recommit their support to independent civil society across China. That community is under sustained assault, and it needs sustained attention from the U.S., including both Congress and the executive branch. People from that community paid a terrible price at Tiananmen. They have paid it over the past three decades, yet they have not abandoned the Tiananmen spirit, and nor should the U.S. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We're going to hear now from Christopher Walker, who is Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. Prior to joining NED, uh, Mr. Walker was Vice President for Strategy and Analysis at Freedom House. Mr. Walker has also served as an adjunct assistant professor of international affairs at New York uh, University Center for Global Affairs. He's been at the forefront of the discussion on authoritarian influence on uh, democratic systems, including through what uh, he has termed sharp power. Uh, Mr. Walker? I'd like to thank Chairman Risch. Ranking Member Menendez and other esteemed members of this committee for the opportunity of presenting testimony on the impact of China's international engagement on democracy. For many years now, the paramount authorities in Beijing have tightened their grip on Chinese society. At home, the Chinese Communist Party has taken steps to intensify its control of media and free expression and sharpen repression more generally. The authorities have enhanced their ability to do so through the application of modern technologies China in the post-Tiananmen era has been viewed by external observers largely through an economic development lens. The democracy's headlong rush into unconditional rather than measured and principled engagement with China has resulted in evident problems. The central assumption was that by deeply engaging the People's Republic of China and welcoming its integration into the global economic system, its government would be encouraged to move in the direction of meaningful political reform. But this approach hasn't turned out the way we anticipated. Although today China intersects in many ways with the global system, it has not become more transparent and accountable under the CCP's rule. Rather, it's developed policies and practices that can corrode and undermine democratic standards. Thus, we are at the same time facing systems integration and systems competition. For too long, observers in free societies have viewed these trends with China as divorced from developments from beyond the PRC, but this narrow view is misguided and has led to a dangerous sense of complacency. Beijing has internationalized its authoritarianism in ways that affects us all. 
This important anniversary of the brutal crackdown of Tiananmen Square, we're obliged to reflect on, ch on the China that has emerged over the past three decades and on how the country's leadership is pursuing its ambitions beyond its country's borders. A critical aspect of China's development is the massive resources the authorities have invested in modern technologies. Such investments over the years have been central to the repression in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is functioning now as a technology-animated police state. As China scholar Samantha Hoffman notes, investment by the Chinese authorities in other parts of China, including in Tibet, over an extensive period of time has enabled the building of the formidable arsenal of surveillance that today is evident in the Uyghur region. Indeed, today, the Uyghur region itself serves as an incubator for the testing and development of cutting-edge technological tools of repression that are invariably feeding back into other parts of the PRC, but also having impact beyond China's borders, including in places such as Latin America and Africa. Apart from the sphere of technology, Beijing has refined and scaled up its instruments of influence, and with them, its ability to manipulate the political landscape in other countries. As the leadership in Beijing has become more repressive domestically, China has grown more ambitious internationally in ways that are anathema to democratic values and the rule of law. Such behavior is at direct odds with the notion of China as a responsible stakeholder. Under the direction of the CCP, China has established platforms abroad for educational, cultural, and other forms of influence within open societies. It's been noted during the course of the discussion so far that China is sharing technologies and know-how with other authoritarian regimes, which is true. Cambodia, Angola, Venezuela, and the like. But I would stress that the wrinkle today that should really concern all of us is that China is sharing these technologies in more open societies. We can talk a little bit more about that, but this is really critical to the understanding of China's evolution and its ambitions. So I'll just say a brief word about some of this in the media sphere, where China has learned to manage political ideas within its own borders quite effectively, as my colleagues have noted. They're now bending globalization in a way that manipulates discourse abroad, both in wide open democratic societies, but also in authoritarian settings. In Africa, for example, China has intensified its engagement, especially in the region's media sphere, expanding its presence in, in state-owned media outlets in the region, hosting exchange programs and trainings for journalists, and acting as a supplier for Africa's telecommunications infrastructure. I'd note, however, that the Chinese government's training of journalists is not what we imagine it to be. It's not real journalism education. Instead, the focus is on taking in Chinese achievements, big infrastructure projects and the like, and on learning how to report from the Chinese government's perspective. Such patterns were also evident in Latin America. I'd note that in the United States in 2015, it was reported that Chinese China Radio International, which is Beijing's state-run radio network, was operating as a hidden hand behind a global web of stations on which China's government controls much of the content. This is in line with the um, patterns we're seeing in terms of China's engagement around the world. And I would say this is defined by opacity and secrecy. So in Panama, just to give a couple of other examples, in El Salvador, when these governments switched their diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the PRC, key government, private sector, and civil society actors in those countries were kept in the dark until after official announcements were made. 
In Argentina, a deal reached when Cristina Kirchner was in power saw the People's Liberation Army given a 50-year lease to build and operate a space observation station with dual-use capabilities in Patagonia. After recent reporting revealed the agreement provided the Argentine government with no mechanisms for oversight or access to the station, Argentina's National Congress launched an investigation and is seeking to revisit the agreement. The key issue here is that in none of these cases was there a public discussion of these very important issues before the deals were cut. And this plays out across the sort of uh, examples we see where China's engaged. So what do we do about the challenge? I'd say a couple of things. Um, first, I think it's really important to emphasize that we've entered into what is a global struggle over whose values will predominate. On the one hand, we have those of the CCP that privileges state control, censorship, and rule by law. On the other hand, we have democratic systems that privilege openness, free expression, and the rule of law. How this contest plays out will define the character of the world we live in. Think as principal steps to get at this, first we need to address the large knowledge and capacity gap on China that exists in so many settings. We need to support uh, journalists, civil society, policy elites, so they can handle the burden that they're facing now in their own countries, in Africa, Latin America, the Balkans, and elsewhere. Second, we need to move beyond transparency. Enhancing transparency is a way of safeguarding democratic societies against undesirable Chinese party state influence is a necessary but insufficient step. Third, we need to prioritize democratic solidarity. And finally, we need to accelerate learning through cooperation with democratic partners. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank, thank you so much. Uh, all three of you uh, provided a perspective for us that corroborates what a lot of us have read uh, from time to time. And it's a, it's a chilling picture that uh, starts to uh, emerge of, of uh, what's happening in China as far as people's privacy, as far as their, uh, uh, the surveillance and, uh, and their real inability to do anything that the, the government isn't looking over their shoulder on. Um, Mr. Walker, I, you raised an interesting uh, point, and I'd like you to expand on that a little bit, if you would, and that is the uh, proliferation of uh, uh, technology to, uh, to open countries uh, as far as uh, their use of these technologies to surveil their own people. Could you talk about that for a couple of minutes? Thank you. So thank you, Senator. This transcends, transcends the technology issue, but it's a critically important part of the discussion. So uh, I think the, the focus on what we might call the authoritarian fraternity, where state repressive states deal with repressive states, is one part of the discussion. But if we think about how the relationship between China and countries such as Ecuador today, or Argentina, or countries in the Balkans are evolving in Serbia, where uh, there's far deeper engagement with China today than there was, say, five or six years ago. These are essentially open settings. They have struggles to achieve democratic reform, but all of these societies are looking to do so. In each of these cases, the privileging of secrecy, um, the transferring of technologies, as we've learned in the Ecuadorian case, that really can have applications that um, are used for purposes that are not consistent with privacy and the rule of law uh, is something that needs far greater scrutiny. And my fear is that because the, um, generally speaking, the expertise we have either knows China on the one hand or some of the countries we're talking about, there's what I would call a strategic gap 
in really getting into some of the issues that countries in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa are facing. Sophie mentioned um, Ethiopia and ZTE. The Ethiopia right now has the promise of democratic reform, but itself, as I understand it, has ZTA, ZTE, Huawei, and StarTimes as its principal tech and content providers. Uh, so it's solely China that has both the ability to create choke points for content in that setting and also to uh, manipulate the tech environment. You uh, made reference to rule of law. Very few countries, if any other than the United States, have the kind of laws that, that provide for privacy of, uh, of their own citizens. So how does that play into that? I mean, if they go to a country that doesn't have those kind of laws, uh, really there's nothing to stop the, the government from converting themselves into uh, uh, an overseer of, uh, of the population. So I think it, it's true that in uh, authoritarian settings, the safeguards that one would hope for don't, don't exist on uh, rule of law, privacy, and other such issues. In some of the countries we've been discussing that are uh, weak democracies or vulnerable democracies, they may well have um, laws on the books that provide such safeguards, but I would suggest that they are in greater jeopardy through this deep engagement uh, with China and that this provides a vulnerability that wasn't really in view as recently as five or six years ago, and it's something we're only coming to terms with now. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your uh, testimony. I, I agree that China's uh, so-called long arm uh, and influence abroad is having implications in human rights issues around the world. Uh, for example, we recently saw that Amnesty International was denied a lease in New York after a Chinese state-owned enterprise was involved. Uh, just a few days ago, more than 1,000 Twitter accounts associated with Chinese human rights activists and defenders were mysteriously shut down. We've seen the Chinese government pressure Southeast Asian countries to detain and deport activists or ethnic minorities, such as Uyghurs. So the question is, are we equipped to confront these global uh, uh, human rights challenges that China presents? Is, is there things that we can better do with our partners, allies, and activists on the ground to tackle this issue across the world? Uh, and uh, uh, I'd like to hear, Ms. Richardson, some idea if you have some perspectives on that. Thank you, Senator. It's a, it's, it's a broad question, but maybe I, maybe I can give you an example that, that speaks to, to your question and also what the chairman was just asking about. Earlier this year, we were looking into censorship of WeChat, which is a social media platform that's used by Chinese speakers all over the world, and particularly uh, Chinese-speaking diaspora communities, including in the U.S. And we came upon an example in which a Canadian member of parliament, who is herself of ethnic Chinese descent, had been communicating with her own constituents through her WeChat account. And she had posted both on her WeChat account and on her Facebook page some remarks that were sympathetic towards the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. And it was not until we contacted her office to point out that those messages, the messages that had been posted on WeChat, which is of course owned by a large Chinese company, had been censored. And we, could, you know, we weren't able to ascertain who exactly had done that. She, hadn't, she and her staff hadn't been aware of it, but I think it's a very powerful example, partly of the phenomenon that, that Chris is talking about, about sp you know, spaces in democratic countries that are being exploited, partly because they aren't being watched very carefully. You know, it's, it's, not, uh, I, it's not the habit of 
you know, elected members of bodies in democratic countries to worry about their communications with their own constituents being censored, especially by entities in some other country. So I think there's much to be done, you know, in the realm of simply being vigilant to these threats. We did some work earlier this year about threats to academic freedom outside of China, but as a result of Chinese government pressure. You know, every single school that we spoke to certainly has you know, honor codes and codes of conduct that speak to issues like cheating and plagiarism. We couldn't find a single one that had on its books any particular uh, rules or instructions or guidelines to even look for examples of you know, embassies threatening students or demanding that they share information with the nearest consulate. So I think there's, it's, 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 the problem now is not even so much about changing or updating laws, but being vigilant to these kinds of threats, you know, and taking steps to guard against them. Well, let me ask you, Mr. Walker, in this regard, the, the NEDS report on sharp power documented how the Chinese government is using the space provided by open societies to infiltrate and spread their propaganda. And the lack of reciprocity in U.S.-China relations is evident not only on trade issues, but also when it comes to freedom of information, movement, and academic freedom. Do you think that the Congress should explore further ways to enforce reciprocity in U.S.-China relations beyond trade? Does the reciprocal access to Tibet Act and its implementation provide a model uh, for other areas? So I think the, the Tibet issue is emblem emblematic of the larger challenge, and I, I would commend um, everyone here to a report produced by the Hoover Institution and the Asia Society, which focused on this very issue. And it observed that you know, the Chinese authorities deny American institutions systematically access to Chinese society, whether we talk about educational exchange, cultural exchange, media engagement. We know this on, from both uh, the harassment that our independent media faces, as well as our public broadcasters that are uh, seeking to reach Chinese audiences. And at the same time, American counterpart institutions are not afforded uh, the same uh, opportunities. I think um, this is not, in my view, a binary choice between um, simply denying China access here as a way of responding. I think we, we need to be creative, and we need to think about ways to um, uh, publicly shine a light on the fact that China is so um, stingy with access to our uh, institutions. I don't think we've done that enough. That's a first step. That doesn't cost too much uh, to make a point that this is the way their system is operating. Uh, this is the way they treat their own people, denying them access to perfectly legitimate conversations about uh, a range of issues, corruption, human rights, press freedom. Uh, they don't permit that there, and they don't permit it for their own people. They don't permit it for um, uh, democrac democratic institutions. I think the first step is to have a much more robust uh, discussion uh, to engage on this. And I think that would go a long way towards uh, setting some wheels in motion. And finally, what should we do about US companies that are involved in providing equipment and other forms of the elements of the surveillance that China is using at home and promoting abroad? What should be our policy in that regard? Uh, I think at least until such time as uh, we can determine or an independent, credible entity can determine that the political education camps in Xinjiang have been closed. I think an end user ban on selling just about anything <laughs> to any part of the Xinjiang government is appropriate. Uh, you know, longer term, the UN has set out guidelines uh, for business and human rights that require 
that each company have a due diligence strategy in place to assure that the company does not have you know, policies or practices or words conducting business in ways that contribute to or enable human rights. And you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the last couple of years with many different kinds of companies. And while most of them have some form of a corporate social responsibility policy, when you ask for an actual due diligence strategy, what steps is that company taking to see who it's selling to, what it's selling, most of them don't have it. And it's worth pointing out that you know, the, the Thermo Fisher had all of the right export licenses to sell what it did. That was never, we were never contesting that. But the problem with a lot of current export controls is that they haven't kept up with what technology is in demand by Chinese authorities for abusive purposes. You know, so while it's still illegal as a result of the Tiananmen sanctions to sell, for example, handcuffs, to the Public Security Bureau, it's perfectly legal to sell DNA sequencers. You know, so there are big gaps, I think, in, in the export controls that can and should be closed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for holding this incredibly important hearing. And thank you to the witnesses for your testimony today. I was proud to work with you, Mr. Chairman, uh, the ranking member, uh, on, and many members of the committee on Senate Resolution 221 uh, to remember the tragic events at Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. And I hope this resolution is something that we can pass out of the Senate as quickly as possible in recognition of that. And I urge all my colleagues to support it. We have to, as a Senate, as a country, continue to demand that the Com Communist Party of China account for this activity and respect the basic human rights of the Chinese people. Um, we should empower people around the globe uh, to know the truth of Tiananmen. Tiananmen wasn't a, a fake, it wasn't a fake moon landing. It wasn't a figment, it was real. People who were killed by an authoritarian state. We must continue to share the truth and not to allow a crime against humanity to be censored away. Just a couple days ago, hundreds of Chinese dissident voices had their accounts suspended on Twitter. You can see the firewalls that have been put in place, uh, the vanishing of chat groups and discussion groups and websites that just seem to undergo routine maintenance right around the time of the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. As evident from the abuses in Xinjiang and Tibet, China's human rights record has only worsened in the last 30 years. This is why the administration and Congress must now act to send a strong message to Beijing that the United States will not abide by such abuses. The Gardner-Markey Asia Reassurance Initiative, signed into law on December 31st, authorizes the administration to impose sanctions against any individual or entity that, quote, violates human rights or religious freedoms or engages in censorship activities. We should take up this language Immediately, Section 409A2 of ARIA also authorizes funds specifically to promote democracy, the rule of law, and human rights in the People's Republic of China. I want to follow up on what Senator Menendez had talked about. The Wall Street Journal just reported uh, not too long ago that many U.S. companies continue to do business in Xinjiang and, and perhaps are uh, either wittingly or unwittingly complicit in the violations that are taking place, the violations of human rights that are taking place there. But we have even more challenges because uh, as Beijing encourages investment in Xinjiang uh, to, draw, to draw jobs there, uh, there are subcontractors 
who are very much a part of the supply chain that are going to Western companies headquartered here that are participating in human rights violations. We know that China is uh, going to try to interfere in Taiwan's election coming up over the next several months. We know that several pension funds in the United States are involved and make investments in one of the largest surveillance companies in China that is actively being used to violate human rights of Uyghurs and beyond. We've authorized a lot of legislation, a lot of funding to help address this and meet this challenge. I'd love to hear from you. How do we make sure that we best tailor the funds that we have authorized to address uh, these human rights violations and what we can do to support human rights defenders in China? I, I just uh, open that up to any of you. Um, Senator, thank you for uh, starting to say we should continue to tell the world, world about the truth of Tiananmen. We know that in China, that truth is being repressed. And through my own work, I watch uh, my China Digital Times team watch the Chinese internet very closely. Over the past eight years, every year, that by the time near the June 4th uh, and, and you know, the last three weeks, there was always an intensified suppressing the online contents about around the uh, uh, Tiananmen. Chinese people do speak out, but they're being suppressed. Let me give you the examples that are over, just examples, over the 264 words that are blocked by the Sina search engine. By, by the way, Sina Weibo is like China's equivalent of Twitter, 600 million users. Right? And it's also on the Wall Street Index. It's the, uh, 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 the company here. Um, look at what kind of words are being blocked. Yes, of course, 64, 89, 8 times 8, 65 minus 1, or 98. Not only June 4th, but May 35th. To translate to June 4th, these are the Chinese netizens using those words to create conversations, but they are being spotted by the censor and deleted. There's of course more. Anniversary, pay respect, moan, Candle, public square. And how about this? Near the date to June 4th, they'll be banned the word today or that day. Why? Because once you search that today, most of the discussion is about June 4th. And there are, there are two, the, the censors are not quick enough to delete them, so they just ban the search words. and move, and fire. And there's a Chinese character called point. It looks like a tank. It, it means point. So anybody say point, point, point. That means tank, tank, tank. That's the code word. It's being banned. Hmm. So that is, it's not that Chinese people just born to be creative to speaking those things. It's because they have a motivation to speak, but the technology and the censorship and the repression is much harder to suppress those voices. Now, a government like that cannot face the truth and accountability to Tiananmen. How can the world can trust its myth of peaceful rise? 
No, you treat the Chinese people this way, when you're getting powerful, that oppression is not going to stop by the Chinese border. And this is the kind we are facing. And you're asking how do we appropriate the fund effectively. I'll start from freedom expression, free flow of information on the internet. Yes, Chinese state is powerful, I keep on saying that, but it's also fragile and insecure. Simply when you meet a Chinese leader, if they are so powerful, why don't they just take off, stop the Great Firewall? Just for six months, try it. Let the information flow. Let the Chinese people can access all the other content on the internet. Just six months, why don't you take down the Great Firewall? The regime cannot afford it. It's that fragile. And that's why that's so brutal. Thank you for sharing that Tiananmen truth. Thank you so much, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of our witnesses for being here today. Um, I'm going to need you. Last February, a number of us journeyed to the Munich Security Conference, and one of the meetings that we had was with the Prime Minister of Greece. And one question that we had for him was about Greece's acceptance of support from China for the Port of Piraeus. And one of his responses was very memorable to that. He said, I asked for help from the European Bank, and I was denied. I asked for help from the United States, and I was denied. The Chinese were willing to help me. So can any of you speak to the ways in which China uses its economic leverage to spread its um, political system and whether we're doing enough in the United States to respond to that? And I don't know, Mr. Walker, you want to begin? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. I think that example is illustrative of a, of a much larger challenge. And you, you spoke in a strategic port context, but I think um, one of the things we haven't touched on yet, which is so critical, is that China is investing enormous resources into people-to-people -people exchanges, into media, into educational initiatives. Um, and I think there was a time when observers of these things going back not that long ago were quite dismissive of these initiatives. But now it's impossible to travel to Africa, to Latin America, to Central Europe, and not to meet someone who's got these, this sort of opportunity. And what they say is, look, we're getting these opportunities. They're paying our way. And we're not getting these opportunities from our democratic partners, including the US. And I think if we're serious about competing and meeting the values challenge, we have to be more deeply engaged across all of these areas. It's something we have to come to terms with. Thanks, Senator, for the question. I'll just add one other example, which is that, you know, it used to be in our universe a fairly easy uh, thing to do to ask uh, the European Union to speak with one voice about human rights issues in China. That has become exponentially more difficult in recent years, largely as a result of Chinese financial developments in southern Europe and the rise of institutions like the 16 plus one that's you know, clearly there to try to split EU solidarity. And I think you know, we see that across not just blocks like the EU, but even within individual governments that have historically been reasonably strong on these issues where you know, people within those governments are clearly feeling the pressure between possibly losing out on a trade deal and taking a principled position. And you know, often what we try to point out is that they can do both. <laughs> 
typically they can get away with doing both, but increasingly people within governments are convinced that they can't, and they've stopped trying. And that's, that's a serious challenge for human rights advocacy. And so are we doing enough in the United States to counter that economic um, commitment that China's making to many of these countries? So I think in fundamentally, no. Uh, but it's, it goes beyond, in my view, the economic question. I think there's been this misapprehension over the, really over the last generation that China was pursuing things solely on the basis of economics. And China's engagement in all the settings we look at comes with other things, politics and values. This was another misapprehension. The values that come with China's engagement tend to be setting aside certain subjects, uh, sidelining civil society participation, and otherwise, in one way or another, censoring discussion. And this is critically important because it, it starts to grow roots, and this becomes a problem. Sophie alluded to this idea of divide and conquer that's emerged within the context of the 16 plus 1 in Central Europe, which, by the way, is now the 17 plus 1 because Greece has joined that set of countries. China uses this essentially as a bilateral um, initiative to operate with the 17 countries. This is happening both at the state level, and Sophie also alluded to this, it's a critical point, but within states, what our universities and our cultural institutions and our media enterprises are finding that they too can be picked off when they are forced to engage or engaging with China. And so we need to cultivate something that really wasn't necessary even a decade ago, which is ways to create common standards and greater solidarity among our democratic institutions. Because if they're faced with dealing with the Chinese party state on their own, uh, they're going to have a really hard time. Um, my next question, I think, is, and I only have a little bit of time left, but for you, Mr. Chang, and um, one of, certainly we read reports in the United States about um, efforts on the part of Chinese who are trying to speak out against the repression that's going on in China. One of the things that we've seen <clears throat> reports on in the last decade or so has been an effort in China to respond to um, schools that are collapsing because of shoddy construction and children being killed, to the environmental concerns that the Chinese people have, to health issues that are there. Is the surveillance state also quashing, squashing those movements as well? If they are independent movements from the civil society and pressing the government, giving real pressure, then yes. But same time, the technology developed in China also does services, also make economy growing, also make people's life smoother. And the government provide better services, really, as long as do not challenge the one-party dictatorship. That's the part that they will put a foot on. So the, um, on the issue of whether there are Chinese people see whether there's privacy that should be protected or whether the technologies should be implemented in a society, the problem is there's no public discussion it would not allow it. For example, social credit system, everybody talking about, right? That, that, that we know how Orwellian this can be. But right now, they haven't quite get there. They haven't 
connect the central database, facial recognition, and, and all of these things together yet, but it's on its way. But the idea has been started from even 2004, as early as that. As soon as they see they want to introduce in the Western America, for example, the credit system from financial transactions, immediately the government see they can expand that to the social area. And that becomes an entirely different issue, right? And then as China does many things, they have the general policy goal, but then they let the local governments that to do the experiment, pilots to experiment that how those things will play out, and they will pick what works, what not, and then to expand. So there's one county in 2004 called Suining County in Jiangsu province. That party secretary went ahead to have the social credit system within his county. Yeah, put grades, credits on everybody, on party cartridges, on the, the ordinary people. If they have a petition to the government, that's a negative credit. If they uh, do something, disobey the government uh, uh, regulation, that's a, that, that, that's a social credit. And that experiment being reported in China by the Chinese uh, uh, media, and it generated a huge controversy. And there's a lot of criticism and discussion at a time because the Chinese media at that time little, had a little room. And the public discussion is no different than what we see it now. That say, hey, this is violating people's rights, and this is too much power for the government. And because at the time it was a local government doing an experiment, the people were just taking advantage to say, hey, it's just a little local government went too far. But that discussion being censored later on. For a couple of years, it was there in the official media, but then now it's disappeared. Nobody say negative things about social credit system anymore. And that local government continuing ex experiment on social credit. They may modify it, they may revise it, but the experiment continued. Now there are over 40 pilot projects and expanding, but the public discussion on those issues, zero. Thank and you. that is what's happening in China. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you, Senator Shaheen. Uh, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you, Matt, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, John, just a second. Before uh, you start, uh, for those of you who see us coming and going, I want to explain that for a minute. The leadership recently scheduled four votes over the top of this meeting, but because of the importance of this particular issue, we decided not to put the meeting off. We're going to continue on, so we're going to have to step out and vote from time to time, but various members will... Uh, will preside. So Senator Brasso, I'm going to go vote, and Senator Romney, you can chair if you would while I'm gone, please. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. As this week marks the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, people around the world continue to remember. Uh, on June 4th, 1989, the government of China sent tanks into Tiananmen Square to violently suppress and forcibly disperse peaceful demonstrators. Chinese government's infantry troops opened fire on students and on activists who were standing up for their fundamental freedoms. The horrible events resulted in the death and injury of hundreds of courageous Chinese citizens who were killed, tortured, imprisoned due to their participation in a peaceful democracy movement in Tiananmen Square. Chinese authorities to this day continue to block and censor public discussions and events marking the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. But despite those efforts, the world has not forgotten. You go to the front page of the Wall Street Journal today, and here it is, Hong Kong remembers Tiananmen Square victims 30 years on. You go to the front page of the New York Times today with the picture of the crowds in the streets, 
a perilous anniversary. Thousands gathered Tuesday in Hong Kong on the 30th anniversary of the crackdown on Tiananmen Square in Beijing. You go to the Financial Times, front page picture, the candles lit and held, Hong Kong pays tribute to Tiananmen Square. So the world has not, nor will never forget. We will always remember. Not forgotten the courage, the pain, the brutality of the government of China that it imposed. We, in fact, those who suffered and died, I think, inspired future generations to proudly demand freedom and democracy across the globe, which is why I'm happy that the three of you are here today speaking out. Uh, the United States has a long record of championing liberty and freedom around the globe. We must continue to support individuals who are demanding freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and the harassment, detention, and imprisonment of Chinese citizens exercising their rights continues today, and we will continue to speak out. So the question to the three of you is, what is the most effective approach in your minds for us to engage the government of China on human rights and fundamental freedoms? Thank you, Senator, both for the, the lovely remembrance uh, and the question. You know, this is uh, not a time in history when the Chinese government is eager to have an honest conversation about human rights because uh, it knows it hasn't got a good story to tell. And we're certainly aware that many governments, including the U.S., continue to try to have that conversation. But frankly, uh, I think those discussions you know, veer on the perverse, if not the counterproductive, because often... You know, the Chinese government will take what is said to it by another government about human rights issues and twist it or misreport it. And I think that can be very discouraging for people across the country to see if, in fact, they're able to know about it at all. I think there's much to be said at this point in time for governments pursuing, for example, things like shadow human rights dialogues with independent activists. Uh, you know, there are many people, there are many people standing in Washington right now who would be you know, incredible to have debates with about the trajectory for the rule of law in China, how to deal with certain kinds of social issues, how to deal with press freedom. And I think for governments to engage those people at a level and with a degree of recognition that might normally be reserved only for another government, I think does a couple of different things. First, it empowers that community and gives it the recognition it deserves. And I think arguably most important, it sends a message to Beijing that those aren't the only actors to have these conversations with. Well, thank you. Anyone else want to add? Yes. Um, to answer the question of how to mostly uh, empower the Chinese people and, and, and uh, the, uh, the fighting against the uh, communist regime, uh, let's learn from our enemy. President Xi Jinping, this February, had an important meeting to his country. It's about preventing potential risks, severe risks. And in that speech, some of them made public, he highlighted two things that he worried about as a risks. One, internet. Two, youth. He is afraid that a new generation of Chinese youth are having different value systems that he would like these people have. He has his fears, but his fears should be our advantages. 
his dream of China dream, that empire dream, that repressing the Chinese people and putting surveillance uh, cameras everywhere, that Chinese Communist Party can last for another 100 years, is a nightmare for the Chinese citizens. It's a nightmare for the entire world. Everybody value freedom. So go against that is the right way. Thank you. <coughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Markey. Um. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, thank you all for your work. Uh, Mr. Xiao, uh, we salute your personal uh, commitment to stand up for human rights after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, this anniversary really gets uh, focused by America, maybe not as often as it should, on these human rights abuses. Ms. Richardson, we appreciate the reporting by Human Rights Watch on China's high-tech surveillance efforts against the Uyghur and other communities. Last month, the New York Times described how Beijing is exporting its mass surveillance model to other governments. And a Rohingya human rights activist told the East Asia Subcommittee in April uh, that it was worried that China could export this surveillance technology to Burma to further repress the Rohingya. I wrote a letter to Secretary um, Pompeo asking him to clarify the administration's actions um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, countering China's actions. As we wait for a response, I would like to ask you, what do you think the administration should do as China exports surveillance technology and surveillance training to other countries? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, I think at the, at the absolute top of the to-do list is making sure that U.S. companies are not in any way engaged in or supporting uh, any kind of censorship itself. It may be of, of interest to you uh, that I think about two weeks ago it was reported that the city of Mandalay was actually contemplating uh, partnering with a Chinese company to uh, build a smart cities network. Uh, in that particular area. And that's a term that's used to describe a very comprehensive surveillance tech architecture in particular areas. Often it's presented as being in service of public safety, but it allows for enormous surveillance. Mr. Xia, what would you want the United States to be doing? Could you turn on your yeah, microphone, Yeah, thank you. First of all, now we're starting to really need to have a very clear eye on what China's those trade practices are, both domestically and uh, internationally. It is a political project. When they expand, it's not just about free trade. Even they're under the disguise of a private companies. But the state has a, what they call a strategic goal for national willingness or national will. And that strategic goal, grand strategic goal, will translate into subsidizing some of those strategically important private companies to go to the one belt, one road, to the other countries, developing certain technologies, build up certain trade relations, and taking advantage of the open society that the rule of law or the, the diversity of society and the free trade and, 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 and all of that. I would this like to ask, I, 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 we're time, kind of time limited, and thank you, and thank you for, for the insight. I, we very strongly received your message here. Um, the New York Times suggested U.S. officials have been shelving sanctions against Chinese officials responsible for abuses against the Uyghurs. 
uh, out of concern the punitive measures will undermine trade talks. If true, what message does our inaction send not only to the estimated three million detainees around the world, but also to the Chinese government and international community about the commitment that we have to protecting human rights in China? Senator Markey, I don't know how many more times we can say to the administration we're waiting to see global Magnitsky sanctions in response to the gross human rights violations taking place in Xinjiang. Okay. I, I literally don't know what else the administration is waiting for. Mr. Walker. I don't know if I have anything to add to that. <laughs> Mr. Xiao, what's the impact in China of the administration's policy? On what? I'm sorry. What is this? What is, what is the impact of the the United of this policy of the United States to kind of turn a blind eye? A trade war? Yeah. It's of course a huge issue, and the authorities are also using it to offend the nationalism, mm. and with the repression and the censorship on the internet on the Chinese media, you can only hear one side of voices. And my team has been really working hard to go through the deleted contents, the censored materials, to listen to the other voices that Chinese people looking at trade war. There are. There are liberal voices. There are more clear eyes. There are, they are the ones who believe that the, letting the Chinese government to follow those rules, to let the foreign companies in, that to uh, compete, maybe it's bad for the government, for their state uh, enterprises, but it's good for people. It's good for consumers, as a matter of fact. Yep. So thank you. There's a Dickensian quality to all of these technologies. We invented them, facial recognition, internet, all of it. It can degrade, it can debase, it can enable, it can ennoble. We, as the inventor of these technologies, cannot turn a blind eye to the degrading and the debasing of cultures using our technologies. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Coons. Um, thank you. I'd like to thank both Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez for holding this important hearing uh, today on the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Mr. Xiao, Dr. Richardson, uh, Mr. Walker, thank you for taking time to speak with us today about uh, human rights and in particular about China's human rights record. Uh, Senator Tillis and I, as the co-chairs of the Senate Human Rights Caucus, yesterday issued a statement honoring and remembering the Chinese students who raised their voices to call for freedom 30 years ago. Like most of us, I remember uh, the horror I felt watching that a brutal government crackdown, as well as the inspiration I felt of the lone anonymous man standing courageously in the path of a column of tanks. Uh, his brave act is an important reminder uh, to all of us uh, that all humans um, struggle for a basic measure of dignity and freedom. Um, so it's deeply disappointing the Chinese government refuses to acknowledge what happened 30 years ago. Um, the fact the government is working diligently in China to erase all mention of what happened in Tiananmen Square makes it all the more important uh, for those of us blessed with freedom uh, and the right to speak freely to do so. Um, it's also a reminder um, that there are many in China who believe in the universal values of liberty and freedom. Um, we have a disagreement uh, not with the Chinese people uh, but with uh, the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Tiananmen is an important reminder many Chinese still want and hope to work for a transparent and accountable government, uh, and not all Chinese believe the propaganda they hear frequently, and we in the United States uh, should find ways to lift up uh, these brave voices. I found particularly compelling um, Senator Menendez's opening in which he reminded us that it is the power of our example as a nation rather than the example of our power 
um, that has built a, a global network of values-based alliances. Um, and whether it's in Sudan, where protesters um, who were peaceful uh, were mowed down by their uh, army just in the last few days, or whether it's 30 years ago on the square in Tiananmen, um, we need to stand up for human rights. Dr. Richardson, if I might, um, you've had a number of um, my colleagues question you about the administration and their sort of inconsistency. Um, your testimony underscored the importance of having Congress keep up the pressure on our administration to promote universal human rights and to not be selective. I applaud Secretary Pompeo for issuing a strong statement about Tiananmen Square, but remain concerned the administration's highly selective, failing to speak out on human rights abuses in North Korea or in Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, how much of our credibility, Dr. Richardson, depends on being consistent as a nation when we speak on human rights? And what happens to our credibility uh, when we are selective, when we only condemn human rights abuses in a few countries and obviously and frequently overlook them or ignore them in other countries? Thanks, Senator, for the question. I mean, clearly being consistent on human rights is essential. If you're selective about it, then you're leaving yourself vulnerable to criticisms that you only care about these issues in one place for political reasons rather than for principled ones. And it undermines the idea that, that Human rights are indeed universal. Uh, I think given, given the scope of my particular work, where the U.S.'s absence recently has been most acutely felt has been at the United Nations Human Rights Council, mm -hmm. uh, where the U.S.'s uh, withdrawal has made it exponentially more difficult uh, to advance uh, any steps towards fact-finding or accountability or a longer-term strategy I'll just say body. one of the more inspiring aspects of my opportunity to serve alongside Senator John McCain was hearing him uh, articulate the way in which human rights is not just one of many interests. It is uh, sort of the principal interest that the United States has to continue to consistently advance around the world. Um, it, it's what defines us, uh, our willingness to advocate for human rights, even when it is not in our narrow or short-term economic or strategic interest. Um, Mr. Walker, I, I found your uh, comments about the ways in which uh, the technology uh, of control and authoritarianism is now being exported uh, by China uh, globally um, to reinforce things I've seen, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, one of my concerns is that um, the ways in which um, the repression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang um, is playing out as you testified in detail um, is now going to be replicated in other countries uh, around the world fairly quickly. One of my concerns is that we've dedicated ourselves um, to um, deploying the, the mechanics of elections uh, to middle income and to lower income um, countries and that there is a concerning now possibility of real overlap between the biometric data capture um, in order to validate elections and um, the machinery of repression that you described. How can we come up with um, standards of conduct uh, for governments for this century um, in order to help their citizens have confidence that by participating in what seems to be a public health screening or by participating in voting, they are not in fact handing over um, their own personally identifying information in a way that makes it easier to track and repress them? So it's a, it's a terrific question, uh, Senator, and it's not an easy one to answer. I would say it speaks to the, the need for democratic solidarity at a very basic level. Uh, I really believe that all the democracies are in this together, and to the extent you have democracies in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, which are now adopting the technologies from China, but also the norms that come around them. It's terribly important that we understand this. It's not just the hardware 
But when China comes in, they come in with know-how and a certain set of standards and norms that, in my view, are anathema to democratic and human rights norms. Uh, this is going to take a lot of work because in countries that have deep institutional roots and therefore, at least to some degree, more um, of an ability to respond to precisely the sort of issue you uh, touched on, uh, they'll be better positioned but not entirely positioned as we learned in our own country with the vulnerabilities of our election system, which is true in all democracies now. I think this is going to speak to the need for new models of cooperation that would go across disciplines. And this is something that's terribly important. It can't just be regional specialists. You need technologists, you need data scientists, you need people who understand privacy, law and rules. And this is something we're gonna have to get better at in the coming period. I'll say this in visits uh, to the Baltic states and to Eastern European states that have faced um, persistent and broad scale interference in their media and communication systems and their electoral systems from Russia. Um, there is a, a sharing among democracies of the um, means of resisting uh, undue influence. Um, I think we need to rapidly uh, develop and deploy something comparable. Your comment on Chinese training of journalists in Africa was a reminder um, that uh, we're far into what is now a competition, but not a clash of civilizations, uh, Mr. Xiao, as you correctly pointed out, but a clash of competing visions of the role of the individual with regards to the state and society. Um, I am well over my time, and we have another vote called Mr. Xiao. I'll simply say um, I found your comments uh, inspiring. Um, I'd, I'd love to give you a minute, if I might, uh, to simply share with us, uh, given that I'm confident that uh, young uh, Chinese uh, in uh, mainland PRC continue to yearn for the same things as those a generation ago did in Tiananmen Square, what can we do here in the United States uh, to help them? Well, um, before I answer that question, I want to respond—not uh, respond, uh, commenting on your your, your if you could know, be foreign policy response, because I know we've got uh, limited time and a vote coming on. A vote. Thank you. Oh, sure. Okay. The United States should put all the many many pro-democracy human rights programs, including the educational area, that have an eye and agenda that to engage the Chinese use to a more open world. Today, many Ch young Chinese, even they come to the United States, they live in their Chinese social media world. They're still not so open to the life here and the political system and values here. So there's much more program can do, even to the Chinese students and overseas Chinese all around the world studying in this country. Thank you, Mr. Zhao. Thank you, Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, I know you have testified, and there have been questions asked about the Uyghur situation, but I just want to return to it. Um, the, the reporting that we've had for the last couple of years about this sort of mass suppression of uh, Uyghurs in Northwest China has just been chilling. The involvement of some American companies in helping provide China with technology has been uh, very, very disturbing. Um, and it strikes me that if Uyghurs were Christians and Chinese government was placing officials in the homes of Christians to monitor whether they engaged in religious observances or not, in the United States we would be absolutely uh, taking to the streets about this. I think the fact that they're Muslims and the fact that the information that we get is, is a little bit harder to access for some has maybe suppressed the degree of outrage among the American public. 
but I just, you know, I've, I've worked on legislation with colleagues to get more reporting from the State Department, letters to the administration to ask them to do more. What, what might we do that would more raise in the American public's consciousness the uh, just shocking violations of these people's basic human rights? I mean, million plus in concentration slash re-education camps, but again, placing of officials in people's homes to monitor their religious observances, just unheard of. What can we do to spread the word more and generate a global outrage about what's happening? So maybe just a brief observation. I think the reporting that's been done in papers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, which has really been phenomenal, bringing to light in graphic detail the way in which this, as I called it, uh, technology-animated police state has emerged in in, um, in Xinjiang is, is critically important. I think the next step is for all of us to understand, and it's, it's consistent with the entire discussion here, that what's happening there cannot be seen in a vacuum. Uh, what's happening there has been happening in other parts of China already <clears throat> and has informed development in the Uyghur region, and <clears throat> it's informing developments beyond China now in all the ways we've been discussing that my colleagues have been talking about. And that's central to this, that this is now, I think, about all of us who value privacy, who value human rights values, that uh, what the Uyghurs are suffering is, I think, in the view of the leadership in Beijing, something that can be applied to the extent it can be applied elsewhere, and that should really chill all of us. I want to ask a second question, and I'm, I'm going to finish on time because I have to vote on this vote, and the, and the second question is this, so give us some advice. He, here's something that we hear often from the administration if we raise human rights issues with respect to Saudi Arabia, for example. They'll say, well, look, if we insist on tough human rights standards, they'll just go to China or Russia because China and Russia will do all kinds of business with them without any human rights standards. That argument always makes me furious. Um, I want to be true to our values. I don't care, I, I hate dictators of the right left or whatever, or the cults of personality, and I think we ought to stand for something different. But, but how do you respond to that argument when somebody makes the argument that, hey, there's a lot of folks around the countries around the world that are perfectly willing to do all kinds of business with you with no human rights expectations? Why should the U.S. still insist on high human rights standards? Well, Senator Kane, thanks for the question. Um, I've been at Human Rights Watch since 2006, and I've heard that argument from just about every government and every administration we've worked with since then in the U.S. and beyond. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be in the lead uh, irking the Chinese. Uh, and, you know, it, it just sort of depends on <laughs> who's in the hot seat that particular day. Mm -hmm. I think governments are at a point now, though, where there's a much greater recognition of the threat the Chinese government presents, not just inside but outside China. And the question now is how to channel, uh, I think, an agreement that there isn't going to be convergence on established international norms you know, to translate that into forceful policies that prioritize, among other things, human rights. And I would, I would tweak your, your point of comparison a little bit. You know, we found ourselves saying a lot, if any other government in the world was locking up a million Muslims simply on the basis of their identity, let's imagine what the global mm. response yeah. would look like yeah, good point. and aspire to that. Mm. Very quickly, two things I can think of off the top of my head you know, that, that this committee and others can do. First of all, I think... The Uyghur diaspora community across the U.S. is in desperate need of recognition, attention, support, and that ranges everywhere from trauma counseling to databases of missing family members 
um, simply to the, a recognition of their problems. The other is really to reach out to uh, your counterparts in other governments to find commonality. We, we cannot find many governments that disagree that the situation in Xinjiang is incredibly serious and problematic. It's very hard to get anybody to step up and make the first move in pushing for any sort of joint response that presumably would put greater pressure on China. Appreciate that. It was an uh, important question. I'm going to do a follow-up on that uh, when I get a chance. But now, Senator Romney, you're up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I very much appreciate the, uh, uh, the committee and the uh, chairman for uh, hosting this, um, uh, this hearing on such an important topic. And I, I apologize, just as a member of the Senate, for the fact that we keep on emptying the, the, uh, the room up here. But there are votes going on, so we keep on having to run back and forth to vote. And uh, the good news is that, that your responses are kept in the record and will be available to us and to uh, people throughout the world that have interest in this topic, as, as I think many, many do. Um, I, I, for one, was inspired by the extraordinary bravery that was demonstrated uh, 30 years ago in Tiananmen Square and um, uh, was um, impressed with the, the courage of the individuals who, um, uh, who stood and, uh, and express their, their uh, desire for freedom and, 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 and recognized a, a sense of um, vitality and, and, uh, and, and energy among the, the people in, in China uh, to consider alternative paths. Um, and, and they were clearly the whole country was not looking to become a democracy of our, in, in, in our form, but, but they were looking at alternatives. Um, my perception today is that that may no longer be the case. And I wanted to get your thought about what the, the mood and the perception of, uh, is among the people in China. Uh, I say that because with, with the Uyghurs being incarcerated, with, uh, with uh, the effort to create uh, civic scores for individuals, um, there is a sense that perhaps the spirit of Tiananmen has been crushed and that it is forgotten among the people of China. Um, I have uh, a very close colleague who's a professor at a business school. He has several Chinese uh, students that are uh, in his business school class. Their classmates ask questions about freedom of expression, about uh, the freedoms that they hope to have. And almost to a person, he says, they defend the government. They suggest that, that it's totally appropriate to uh, to prevent uh, the internet, uh, to, uh, to uh, foment uh, uh, anger among the Chinese people, that they should be united. And so it, it, he said it's extraordinary to see that there is very little discussion of, of alternatives among the Chinese people. Um, and so I, I turn to you who, who watch closely what's happening in the country and, uh, and, and would ask for your perception as to is, is there uh, a, a, a dissent movement within the country? Is there an openness to change? Is there a desire for change? Or has it been uh, crushed uh, by the government. Please. Uh, when the uh, social media just got into China around 2003, 2004, and there's a few hundred, a few thousand Chinese blogs, and I asked my student researchers to say, look, there's political discussion on Chinese blogs. He came back to say, no, they only talk about money and business. Well, really? After 10 years, by the time of 2009, 10 and 11, when the social media become like 
uh, have hundreds of millions of users. Even the censors were working so hard, the online main voice opinion leaders are public intellectuals holding liberal political values. They have the maxim of the follower. But that what leads to President Xi Jinping to have a full-scale crackdown on the Chinese internet. So if even if the control is not strong enough, those voices not only coming out, not only dissent, but popular and massive. Second, yes, we heard all of this, that Tiananmen in the past, we forgot about Tiananmen, some people say I changed my mind, and some people say I don't know anything about Tiananmen. But really, do you really believe that? Why Chinese government tried so hard to suppress every single word about Tiananmen on the internet? Don't say Chinese government making a mistake, wrong judgment on this. They know as soon as they can let that repression a little bit off, the memory do comes back. People do remember. People not remembering, not telling you to remembering because of fear. And they rule by fear. Thank you. Any other comments? Yes. Just a quick observation, Senator, that um, I think one, one piece of the current puzzle really is about people who leave China for more open environments, uh, you know, precisely because they want to know about or become exposed to different political systems or have the opportunity to study, uh, you know, in, in places that ensure academic freedom. And I think it's imperative for the United States and other democracies to think of those people in terms of solidarity. Uh, I think it's a complicated discussion now with concerns about national security or whether people are acting as agents on behalf of the Chinese government. But I really feel uh, very strongly, especially given that this is a mistake the United States has made in the past to arbitrarily target people based on their citizenship or their ethnicity, to not repeat that mistake at this particular moment. There are people who come here precisely because they want the rights and the freedoms. And I think there are people who are feeling uncomfortably targeted and it's imperative in keeping the Tiananmen spirit alive. Part of that lies here, too, in keeping this environment open for them. Thank you. Thank Sen you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to each of the witnesses for being here today. This week marks a dark occasion in world history. 30 years ago, thousands of Chinese protesters gathered in Tiananmen Square demanding freedom and demanding democracy. The Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army slaughtered them. To this day, we still don't know exactly how many perished on that bloody dawn, as Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Xiaobao described it. Today, the CCP continues its war against the people of China and treats the rest of the world with similar disdain. In my view, China poses the greatest long-term geopolitical threat to the United States. They have to be dealt with and dealt with with clear eyes. We can't break off relations with Beijing, but we must begin to rethink the assumptions that have guided U.S. policies towards China since Tiananmen Square. Let's start by addressing an uncomfortable reality here at home. The role of U.S. technology in China's oppression of its people. Dr. Richardson. Human Rights Watch recently released a report where your colleagues reverse-engineered a Chinese censorship app for smartphones. This app, called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, is a primary tool of mass surveillance in Xinjiang. 
In this report, you reference U.S.-based companies that contribute to the censorship apparatus in Xinjiang. This week, I plan to introduce legislation, the Tiananmen Act of 2019, to restrict China's access to such technology. In your judgment, how widespread is U.S. technology in modern-day Chinese surveillance and censorship? Senator, thanks for that question. I wish I had a perfect answer to it. Uh, when we're done reverse engineering things, that's the next on our, our list of uh, research projects. But I think the fact that we don't have clarity about that and that it's not easy to get clarity about that is a problem in and of itself. And we've discussed this morning the need for due diligence strategies from all manner of companies, whether they're tech companies, whether they're infrastructure extractives, you know, about what exactly the nature of their business is and how they can be sure they are not enabling or contributing to human rights violations. If you Google Tiananmen Square in China, do you learn anything about the massacre, about the slaughter? You see all the tourists, right? And the tourist pictures. Um, but the, uh, rem rem remember this, the Chinese government cannot really, uh, not only uh, suppressing those discussions, they also guiding and inciting and uh, sort of channeling the public opinion to the uh, uh, ideological uh, foundation that's supporting the regime. Only under the fear and under such technology support that that strategy is some kind of effective. But now we have a game changer, which is the new layer of the artificial intelligence big data technology. Yes, U.S. are still ahead of, of China on artificial intelligence in most, most many uh, areas, but not on implementations on facial recognition, not on voice recognition, not on uh, some of the other uh, metrics that collecting, because China has a large set of data to training their algorithms to make the application much more precise and comprehensive and fast. And this is a danger. Well, and many of us are concerned that U.S. companies are actively aiding and abetting China's suppression of its people and censorship of free speech. Indeed, days before the Tiananmen Square anniversary this year, reports began to circulate that Twitter had suspended the accounts of dozens of Chinese political dissidents. Twitter reportedly had run a sweep for bots. Uh, how would you describe the Communist Party's efforts to coerce American companies into assisting the party's censorship activities? On Twitter, I can uh, say this. I don't know what's recently happened inside of a Twitter company. I think they should tell the public uh, uh, giving a, uh, uh, a report on that. But I do know that the Chinese espionage and intelligence communities have developed the tools, the technologies, can infiltrate the Twitter, Facebook, Gmails, that creating face account, uh, uh, creating face tweets, and uh, uh, penetrating anybody's tweets account or Gmail account, or Facebook account. They have that technology. And Mr. Chairman, if I may ask one more. Please, go ahead. Uh, Mr. Walker, you, you've warned about China's sharp power, and, and you've described the Chinese infiltration of American higher education institutions. Uh, this is an issue that, that 
concerns me greatly. Just, last, just this week, I introduced the Stop Higher Education Espionage and Theft Act, which gives the FBI and DHS new authorities to address these issues. Uh, my, my question for you is what steps should universities take to insulate themselves from Chinese espionage, and what steps should the U.S. government take to protect higher, higher education from these threats? So, I, thank you, Senator. I think the question you've asked is related to the previous one as well, that this is a pattern of either inducing or cajoling or coercing open institutions, independent institutions in open societies to behave in ways they wouldn't otherwise behave. And so you've alluded to some of these issues that are relevant to um, the stealing of technology and related things, but there's a full spectrum of challenges that have emerged that transcend those issues, uh, which uh, can induce educators, um, students in our open societies to sidestep certain issues or to not talk about certain things that aren't welcome by the Chinese authorities. And I think this is, God bless you, this is uh, something that we um, need to find, as I've alluded to in previous writings and earlier today, to find ways to develop uh, more durable democratic solidarity so that no single institution is exposed to the entreaties and the influence of the Chinese party state. That's the most effective way over time to have these institutions feel as though they can say no and essentially uphold liberal democratic standards. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, in closing up, let me uh, just uh, talk about a couple of things. Number one, are all three of you aware of the um, Micron Technology case, uh, the case uh, that emanates from Idaho? Uh, Micron Technology is the second largest maker of uh, DRAM memory chips in the world, and the uh, Chinese have stolen their trade secrets and their technology and gone home and patented them in China, and now are suing them in China over the use of their own technology. Are, you, are the three of you aware of that? Uh, th this is a poster child for uh, what they're trying to accomplish with uh, China 2025, and uh, it's, uh, you, you ought to get familiar with that. Uh, it's, it, it's on the radar of the administration at the highest level, and. Uh, and obviously here in Congress, um, we've, had, we've taken it up with the Chinese uh, ambassador here, uh, uh, who is, uh, um, he, he was born to be an ambassador, <laughs> defending the undefendable. Um, let, me, uh, let me just close up with a point that, that I want to raise that we, we've just barely touched on, and that is the fact that all of us on this committee, me maybe more so than others, get touched by virtually every country in the world. We get the, the head of state, number two, the uh, commerce person, defense person, foreign, uh, foreign secretary person. And when you talk about what China's doing in their country, first of all, you find that China's doing something in every country. I mean, they're, they're ubiquitous around the world. Um, but when you, when you talk to them about what they're doing and you bring up uh, the Sri Lanka case where... Uh, uh, the Sri Lankans lost the port that they uh, they took the money and uh, and mistakenly and now have have, have lost that port. They're, um, they 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 come back and say, well, United States isn't doing enough. You know, here's China got all got shows up with a bushel basket of money and the United States doesn't. Um, you know, you, you sit and you listen to that and uh, and these are people that desperately need money in some places like Sri Lanka. What's your response to that? What, 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 do you, what do you say to somebody like that? Uh, Ms. Richardson, I think you started. Uh, why don't you touch on that for a minute, please? 
I find myself saying often in interviews that you know, we're all familiar with this, the phrase that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature's got nothing on the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. which will move into Good any point. space it is granted. And I think any government that's serious about defending human rights needs to get out and become very aware very quickly of all of the spaces that the Chinese government and Communist Party have moved into and defend them vigorously now while they still can. Many of those, many of the key institutions that, you know, that the United States relies on, that people in China who want democracy rely on, that people in Sri Lanka uh, who want human rights rely on are under threat specifically as a result of Chinese government pressure, and that should be a priority for the U.S. Uh, good answer. One of, the one of the problems is there's only so much money, and uh, the Chinese seem to be, uh, be able to pick out places where they can put money. And they don't do it like we do. I mean, it's got nothing to do with human rights. It's got nothing to do with democracy. It's got nothing to do with the, uh, with the rectitude of the, uh, of the government that's in power. All they're looking for is, uh, is, is the wedge to put the money into. And uh, it puts us at a real disadvantage uh, as we go out and do that. And, and that's particularly true, too, when uh, American, I, I hear this from American countries all the time, they go out and bid on a job or what have you. The, the, they don't have a Corrupt Foreign Influ Influences Act in China, as you probably know. So we, our companies are at a disadvantage there when they try to uh, compete. So, But not only about money. These countries, including their government, needs to understand or recognize the danger are being so in-depth or controlled, potentially being controlled and manipulated by the Chinese authoritarian regime, that it's not a rule-based game that they have oppositional parties, many of them. They have civil society. They have relatively open media. Their people need to know. This is just not about who providing more money. Uh, and Chinese, a lot of those investments also eroding the democratic systems in those countries. So if there is some kind of public education throughout those different countries China goes to, that public campaign that to recognize what Chinese government capable of doing to control the countries or for in those countries for the China's interest, then there is certain resistance that can help. I, I think that's, uh, that's appropriate. I, I don't want to risk an international incident, so I'm not going to mention countries, but there are some countries that are much more susceptible to this than other countries, and I think that's a good point. So, Mr. Walker, do you want to close it up? So I think one way to, to think about this, Senator, is that it, it is about the money in certain respects, but it's not only about the money. And for so many of the countries that we're talking about, and as my colleagues have alluded to, uh, they're now deeply engaged with China on a wide range of levels in many spheres. And it's not just about the infrastructure investment. It slowly becomes about the way their media and technology spheres develop. It's about the degree to which perhaps weak political opposition can continue to sustain itself. It's about the way in which civil society can operate, for example, in countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. And I would put it this way. I don't think the United States and its partners has the luxury of not doing anything because China is projecting and exerting its values in a vigorous and purposeful way. It abhors a vacuum. And to the extent we are not vigorously pursuing our own values and helping our partners defend them um, in solidarity, uh, that's going to be a losing proposition. And we're going to find ourselves, I suspect, if we do um, about what we're doing now, five years from now, say, in a, in a very unpleasant position. Well said. Thank you all for being here today.
Uh, for the uh, record, I will state that I'm going to keep the record open until close of business on Friday. Uh, members may have questions to submit. If you would be so kind as to respond to those at your earliest convenience, we would uh, greatly appreciate. This been a been a very good uh, hearing. I think that uh, it's going to be watched uh, around the world probably, and uh, I, I think it's uh, underscored uh, the challenges that we're facing. Thank you again uh, so much for being here. So this uh, the committee will be adjourned.